0: The three amigos are set to come together for the first time in five years, but will it be a friendly or tense reunion? This Thursday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, U.S. President Joe Biden, and Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador will meet in Washington. The pandemic, global supply chains, and climate are expected to be top priorities, but Canada will have particular issues to talk about. A proposed Buy American strategy for the auto sector in President Biden's trillion-dollar infrastructure plan is fueling concerns over jobs here in Canada. The Biden administration wants to give Americans an up to $12,500 tax rebate for the purchase of electric vehicles. Part of the credit would be for cars assembled at a unionized plant in the U.S. Pipelines are also contentious. After the cancellation of the Keystone pipeline and a current dispute over the Line 5 pipeline, and just this past week, the U.S. inflation rate jumped to 6.2%, the highest level in more than 30 years. Can Canada and the U.S. work together to bring down the cost of living? Is the relationship between the two countries strained? And what will Canada's top priorities be at this week's meeting? And joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Canada's ambassador to the U.S., Kirsten Hillman. Ambassador, lovely to see you. Um, welcome to Question Period. Um, I want to talk about this meeting this week in Washington. This will be the first summit between the three countries since 2016. Um, in our business, we know there will be a great photo op Um uh, but, you know, Joe Biden did not call this meeting to tell his neighbors, what can I do for you? Um, what are lawmakers and the White House telling you this meeting is about?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Um, so, you know, I think that for, for the, the White House here, but equally for us, and I, I don't want to speak for Mexico, this meeting is about getting the three leaders in our neighborhood, in the North American neighborhood together, as you say, for the first time in a very long time, um, and after a moment that's been very difficult for all three countries. I think it's about talking about how we have made it through COVID, lessons learned from what we've been through, ways to go forward in the future that are going to make us stronger and more resilient. Uh, The leaders will no doubt talk a lot about um, what they've been through, both from a health perspective um, and keeping their populations as healthy as they can this past uh, year and a half, but also making sure that we, we approach these kinds of things better in the future, getting the economy back on track, fighting climate change, you know, all the things that, that neighbors should be talking about. Um, I think that between the U.S. and Mexico, um, and, and it's important to us too, there's, there's
0: issues around migration that are always
1: present uh... so I, I would expect that'll be on the agenda
0: well that's it so when when you know when president biden was was first elected there was a lot of optimism that the relationship between canada and the u.s. would would strengthen i mean following the trump years um, you know but that may not necessarily be the case so despite the rene- renegotiating of nafta and you, you knew that time trade issues persist uh... we see it in biden's you know build back better plan um, you know, under Donald Trump it was America first, it's by American with, with, with uh, Joe Biden. Um, you know, do you feel that the American president, president now is willing or even capable of making concessions and compromising?
1: Well, I think, look, the first thing I would say is that the, I think the Canada-US relationship is strong. I think that the relationship between our leaders is strong. I think that they share very similar values in terms of what they're trying to do within their own countries. Does that mean we won't have disagreements and some of them, you know, serious disagreements? No, of course not. But those disagreements don't define the relationship as a whole. So we will, you know, as we always have, when it comes to some of these issues where the U.S. um, domestic policy objectives may, Put Canada in a difficult position or at a disadvantage. We will bring our arguments to the table as to why those are not good choices, and they're not good choices necessarily for Canada, of course, but they're not good choices for Americans, and, and that's what we've been saying.
0: You know, but, but let me bring just one contentious issue aside from the from the tax rebates for the for for, for cars bought in in uh, electric cars bought in the United States. Um, the Line 5 pipeline. You know, there's a current legal dispute going on between Canadian company Enbridge and the Michigan government, which is trying to shut down the line. The White House says it's not considering a shutdown. and says the two countries are negotiating uh, the future of the pipeline. So will this be something that will be raised at the summit? You
1: know, I, I'm, I'm confident that the prime minister will raise every issue that's important to Canadians, and the Line Five pipeline is important to Canadians, and the the discussion and the the dispute between Enbridge and Michigan is
0: important, and so I have every expectation that they will talk about that. Cost of living is 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 going up at the highest in 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 thirty years, six point two percent increase. Um, you know, in Canada is is four and a half percent. It may end up by being five percent by the end of the year so these are two countries who have to take care of their own before they take care of each other but when it comes to the united states that means that sometimes you know canada gets cast aside or forgotten um, so what do you see as sort of the biggest challenge c- going into this meeting
1: i think that what you know my job down here with my team is to make sure that whether it's lawmakers on the hill Or people in Congress or stakeholders across the country understand that the best way to keep um, the American economy strong and the best way to make sure that the good jobs are being created is to work with Canada to up each other's game you know I think that the evidence shows that when we are working together in um, collaborative, competitive supply chains. When our researchers are working together, when our academics are working together, when our businesses are working together, we do better, we are more competitive, we create more innovative products. And, you know, the sense that turning inward is going to protect a country, it's not new. You know, we've, we've, we've dealt with this before, we have it sometimes in our country and we see it around the world. But I think that the job of someone like me and and my colleagues and the government and our ministers is to bring the facts to the conversation. And the facts clearly show, as they did in the NAFTA negotiations and as they do today, that in working together, Canada and the United States create more jobs. When we try and pull ourselves apart from each other,
0: our businesses and our workers suffer. I want to move to China here. In late September, uh, the incoming U.S. ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, told a Senate committee, quote, we are all waiting for Canada to release its framework for its overall China policy. So we know you just met with Ambassador Cohen this past week. Is this an issue you discussed with him? And, you know, going forward, is are you going to align Canada's China policy with the U.S.? Well, so
1: I guess what I would say to that is that we talk about um, China-related issues with all of our allies, you know, all the time. And chief among our allies is the United States. So we talk about how we have common objectives around working with China globally. We talk about our shared concerns on, you know, human rights and um, democracy and protection of certain regions of of the Indo-Pacific. And then we talk about economic issues and making sure that we have all the tools to ensure that the trade that was happening globally is free and is fair and is is appropriate. Um, so, So you know, I think that in terms of aligning Canada's policy overall with the United States or anyone else, I mean that's not really how we approach these things. We adopt policy that makes sense for Canada. And for Canadians
0: and that's what we'll do here. And most likely Canada will be pressed to make a decision on whether or not Huawei should be used in the 5G system. Is a decision imminent? I mean the Americans are asking you and your allies are asking Canada to make a decision. Has the ambassador raised that with you?
1: Um, uh, He didn't raise that specifically with me. I think that you know those decisions uh, we'll have to wait uh, until our government uh, is back and Parliament's back, and I think we'll have to we'll have to see what what is happening then. But this is an issue, of course, that that we discuss amongst our allies and uh, and uh, which there's been a lot of analysis done by experts in Ottawa and and with allies around the world. So we'll have to watch and see where that goes.
0: Ambassador Kristen Hellman, thank you so much for taking the time. That's all the time we have. Thanks so much.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye bye.
0: All talk and no work? That is some of the criticism surrounding the UN climate conference that just wrapped up. In the conference's final talks, an agreement on the end of coal and the phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies went down to the wire. Canada has already pledged to phase out coal fired power by 2030 and eliminate fossil fuel subsidies by 2023. But details are scarce. Meantime, the divisive fight against climate change continues to manifest itself here at home. Like Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe is criticizing the government for not consulting him on the federal government's plan to cap oil and gas emissions. Why didn't the federal government consult the provinces? And how can the federal government work with provinces that rely on the energy sector? Let's find out. Joining me now is Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Uh, Minister, welcome to Question Period. Thanks for joining us. Um, I would like to start with the latest comments from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moan. I spoke to him earlier uh, this week on CTV's Power Play. uh, And like Premier Kenny, he says he was not consulted on the pledge to cap emissions. So I want to play a clip for you first and then get your reaction.
2: We would have hoped that phone call would have been made before uh, we had, you know, literally jetfuls of, uh, of,
3: of federal uh, folks going over to Glasgow and making an announcement like this.
0: Minister Wilkinson, why weren't the provinces consulted uh, before the emissions cap announcement at, you know, at, at COP26? And have you spoken to the provinces since, you know, since this week?
3: Well, let me say a couple of things. I mean, the first is um, this was a campaign commitment, so there was no surprise there. It was in the platform of the Liberal Party. And to be honest, it was actually in response in many ways to many of the oil majors on the prairies who had already committed to net zero by 2050. And what we said is, yeah, let's put a framework around this. Uh, At the end of the day, the oil and gas sector is Canada's largest single source of emissions that's been growing. If we are going to achieve the climate objectives that science tells us we must, and let's be clear, this is a science issue, not a partisan issue, um, that we need to see reductions in in uh, in emissions from the oil and gas space, but so so no surprise here, um, and and of course we will be consulting with the sector and with provincial governments about how we do. You
0: no, know, I mean with all due respect, uh, I'm saying well it was a campaign promise. We both know that they're you know they don't always become reality those campaign promises, uh, and you know Scott Moe has also talked about wanting Saskatchewan to be a nation within a nation. Now I realize there's a lot of rhetoric here, but are you? Are you concerned that divisions you know, over how to tackle climate change um, will get worse?
3: We need to work productively with provinces and territories. Look, I, I, I come from Saskatchewan. I worked for a distinguished premier of Saskatchewan and actually did federal provincial relations for the province of Saskatchewan, so it's a province that I actually know pretty well. Um, and and what I would say to you is of course we need to be working together but it's not over the question of whether we take action to address climate change I mean that's a science issue that's not a debate it's about how we do it and and we need to be thoughtful about this in terms of how we reduce emissions in a manner that's going to promote economic opportunity in all regions of the country certainly in the prairies and and as I said to premier Moe's minister um, uh, last week when I spoke with her um, you know I am absolutely committed to working with her I am also committed working with Minister Savage in Alberta.
0: You worked in clean tech for over 20 years, Minister. Are you comfortable being the Canadian minister now, you know, in, in, in this context that we're talking about, being the Canadian minister promoting oil and gas, you know, the country's natural resources, uh, you know, on the international scene to the world?
3: Well, I don't see my job as promoting oil and gas. I think my job is to actually ensure that we are being thoughtful about how we grow a clean economy that includes the natural resource sector includes other areas that fall within my purview around renewable energy and those kinds of things on hydrogen and biofuels it's about how do we actually take the steps from an economic perspective to ensure that we have jobs and economic prosperity for Canadians in a low-carbon future as I say it's not about whether we take action on climate it's how do we do it in a way that's going to promote economic activity I think that the debate about whether you take action on climate is well behind us it's about how you do it and in that context I think my background in clean tech is entirely relevant because clean tech is certainly part of that conversation.
0: Canada committed to capping oil and gas emissions, for instance, but environmentalists say it isn't enough and you must also cap the amount of oil and gas we extract from the ground. So, are you willing to put, for instance, a moratorium on new climate projects?
3: Well, what I'm what I'm particularly interested in is what the atmosphere sees. That's what's driving climate change. So the focus really does need to be on emissions, and and very much I'm focused on reducing emissions um, and ensuring that we actually take advantage of the economic opportunities across the piece. I was in my previous job. I will be on a go forward basis, but let's be clear. This is not just singling out the oil and gas sector. I mean, look at look at the automotive sector. I mean, one of the one of the pledges that we have made is that there will be no more internal combustion engines sold in this country after twenty thirty five. That will require significant trans- uh, transformation of, of the auto manufacturing sector. Um, and, and that is true across the piece. We've talked about a, a net zero building code. It's going to require significant changes in terms of how we do buildings. I mean, at the end of the day, all of the sectors in the economy have to make a, a contribution to reductions by 2030. And they all absolutely have to make a, a, a significant contribution if we are to achieve net zero by 2050.
0: Yeah, and to that point, at the end of COP26, there was a global call to phase out. Uh, coal uh, and fossil fuel subsidies, the Liberals, your government, have pledged to phase out public financing of fossil fuel sector. Is there a target date for that? And are we talking about the Canadian one or on the international market?
3: But in terms of, of uh, subsidies and financing, which are two separate things, we've committed to essentially eliminate uh, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies by 2023. That's two years ahead of everybody out of the other country in the G20 where we made that commitment. Um, we committed at COP to eliminate uh, financing of fossil fuel projects outside of Canada. <laughs> And, uh, and that will be done by the end of 2022.
0: And how about inside also, of Canada?
3: And we also committed during the campaign to eliminate financing of fossil fuel projects. We haven't put a date on that yet. That's something that the Minister of the Environment and I will be negotiating and, and figuring out over the coming few months.
0: You've got a lot of work ahead of you, uh, the Environment Minister as well, uh, you, basically your whole uh, government. How do you see this transition you know, happening?
3: This is going to be different in every region of the country, right? Um, what what will work in terms of economic strategy for Quebec in a low carbon future, which will involve you know critical minerals and batteries and a and a hydroelectric power, is very different from what the, what uh, the, the prairies will uh, will look at in terms of opportunities, where that may, may be more in the form of hydrogen and, and biofuels. Um, and, uh, and carbon capture and sequestration. And so we're going to need to build uh, with collaboratively with provinces and territories, regional economic strategies as to how we benefit from a transition that we need to go through uh, over the coming decades to ensure that we, we are leaving a habitable planet for our children.
0: It is going to be a long and, and I suppose difficult debate. Jonathan Wilkinson, thanks for being there with us today.
3: All right, thank you very much.
0: Supply chain issues, global shortages and inflation. Just some of the problems facing Canada's business community. Canada is set to meet with the U.S. and Mexico this week to discuss all of these pressing issues. But points of conflict remain, including what impact America's Build Back Better legislation will have on the Canadian auto sector. And how can North America address global supply chain issues and labor shortages. Will there be a coherent border policy for both countries? Let's find out. Joining me now is Goldie Hyder, Business Council of Canada president and CEO, and Mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati. Gentlemen, uh, good morning. Happy Sunday, uh, Mayor Diodati. Let me start with you here. Justin Trudeau heads to Washington this week. You know, for a first meeting in, what, five, six years with the U.S. and Mexican presidents, you know, the so-called three amigos. You're a border mayor, and what do you need to hear coming out of that meeting? Perhaps, I don't know, I'm just suggesting this, a better collaboration or coordination on border policies?
4: You nailed it, uh, Joyce. We need a seamless relationship. It needs to be coherent. And it needs to be consistent because there's a lot of confusion right now around the border. Both countries are treating it differently. Obviously, we're each other's greatest trading partners. And here in Niagara Falls, obviously, tourism is really key. We're the number one leisure destination in the country, and upwards of 14 million people come. And typically, 25% come from the US, and they represent 50% of the revenue. So there's been a lot of confusion, a lot of consternation, but we need more consistency. And uh, that's what we're looking for. I'm hoping it's not just going to be, you know, lip service. I'm hoping that we're going to actually have some move forward initiatives.
0: So Goldie Hyder, we have the mayor hoping this won't be just one long photo opportunity with, you know, smiling faces, but you know, problems behind the scene. On Friday, you issued a statement with your asks, your wishes probably for the meeting this week in Washington. What should be the priority for Canada's business sector?
5: This can't be just a photo op or, you know, um, the fact that we haven't done this in five, six years. There are significant issues that are both challenges but also opportunities. Uh, We have to stop behaving in North America as three independent countries and see what's going on around the world. Countries are coming together in Asia and Europe to advance collective regional interests. We need to think about North America and how we can compete. The USMCA that you referred to has a clause in it called the competitiveness clause. We need to figure out how can North America work together on the energy transition, on the whole climate change question, but still advocate for our, you know, our inclusive growth agendas and our diversities and so forth. But to do so in a way in which we bring the best of North America to the rest of the world.
0: But you know, truly, it is it is a tall order. You know, a, a Mayor, you know, the Mayor of Windsor. Uh, Drew Dilkins made an interesting comment this week about, you know, the sigh of relief Canada, you know, in Canada when Joe Biden was elected after four years of, you know, an unpredictable Donald Trump, and that's an understatement. A year later, he says the relief is gone. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, how difficult is it going to be for Canada to negotiate with Joe Biden?
5: Well,
4: Mayor Dilkins is a good friend. We talk regularly, and we share a lot of cross-border concerns. And I, and I have to agree, I'm concerned with some of their protectionist policies and Biden of course, you know, being supported by con- congressional Democrats and he's got a mandate and I don't know that he can go too far off of it. I'm concerned we need to focus on symbiotic opportunities. The idea that we grow the pie and the high tide ro- rises all boats. RATHER THAN FOCUSING ON ONE INDIVIDUAL OR BILATERAL, WE NEED it TO BE ALL OF US. SO WE'RE DEFINITELY CONCERNED. HERE NOW WE'VE GOT SOME PROTECTIONIST POLICIES THAT ARE THREATENING US AGAIN. SO I, I'D HAVE TO AGREE WITH MAYOR DILKINS THAT THE CHALLENGES DON'T SEEM TO BE ABATING. AND I DO AGREE ALSO WITH Goldie's COMMENTS THAT WE NEED TO GO TO THEM WITH A SOLUTION THAT WORKS FOR EVERYBODY, SELL IT TO THEM, PRESENT
0: IT TO THEM AND HOPEFULLY GET IT ENDORSED. So- uh, Goldie, you know, the, the, the inflation rose to, what, 6.2% in the States. Everything is more expensive, gas, clothing, food, shipping. You know, I can go on and on here in Canada, what, it's over 4%. We're still in a pandemic. Interest rates are bound to go up in this context. Don't you expect that it will be each man for himself, like trying to pull that blanket as you know, hard as they can? This is not a time, it seems, where uh, leaders are feeling very generous. So what we need to do, Joyce,
5: is to show that that kind of thinking is actually harmful to our citizens protectionism drives up costs. So you mentioned the risks of inflation. Imagine people who are now being told you have to pay more for things just because we're going to be protectionist and think that the short-term gain is good for the long-term. It is not. We are nations of free traders. We believe in the trade agreement. We just signed and renewed a very significant document that took a lot of effort, a collective effort on the parts of governments and business and labor. We need to, uh, to honor that agreement. That's one of the messages. I'm hoping that the Prime Minister here is emboldened by the support He's receiving from the business community and the labor community say, we got your back. You go down there and you make sure that this agreement that's been made is honored. We we need to make sure as Canadians that we never take the U.S. relationship for advantage.
0: Mayor Diodati, just just as a last question, has your local economy, your small businesses, felt the effects already of this higher inflation?
4: Absolutely. I was in yesterday with uh, one of the biggest industrial developers in North America, And he said, steel, not only is it the price due to inflation in the supply chain, you can't get it. And everything has to be planned out far in advance. It is absolutely affecting all aspects. We've got, it seems wars on all fronts. They're having a labor shortage. They can't get people to fill the jobs. They can't get the supplies that they need to build the projects. And and we know they're panicking because they know the inflation is going to continue. And here we've got tourism, a major multi-billion dollar industry that isn't happening yet either because we've got restrictive you know, measures at the border. So there are so many issues, but like any good relationship, it, it involves communication. And we always say, brush the teeth you want to keep. I think we need to not just reach out to the United States when we need something. It has to be ongoing. I know it is. It, it can be better.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I'm sure we're all, gonna, we're all certainly going to be following that meeting. You know, there's a lot at stake. Uh, Mayor Diodati, uh, Goldie, Hyder, thanks. Uh, for spending this Sunday morning with us.
5: Thank you. Thanks, Joyce.
0: The fight against climate change and the fight against COVID-19. Opinions on how to tackle those battles remain heated. Premiers whose provinces rely on the energy sector are loudly criticizing the federal government over its declaration to cap emissions from the oil and gas industries. Saskatchewan the Premier, Premier Scott Moe is now wrong calling wrong the policy to detrimental to his province. Meantime, with the return to Parliament just around the corner, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole has unveiled his shadow cabinet. Not included are former leadership rival Leslyn Lewis and MP Marilyn Gladue. Just days ago, Gladue had to apologize for sharing vaccine misinformation on CTV's question period last Sunday. O'Toole says both have made comments that are unhelpful.
5: It's important for members of Parliament to advocate for their... St- Uh, their constituents who may be losing a job or may need reasonable accommodation. We do that all the time on a range of issues. But it's very different to cause confusion with respect to the health and well-being of Canadians.
0: What message is Aaron O'Toole sending with his shadow cabinet picks? And did the federal Liberals misstep by not consulting the provinces on its climate plans? To answer all that, the Scrum is here. CTV News parliamentary reporter Annie Bergeron, Oliver Tonda McCharles from the Toronto Star, and our special guest this round, former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore. Um, welcome to the show, James Moore. Uh, you know, the Saskatchewan Premier and Alberta's Premier say they want to be a part of the solution to fight climate change. So, why do you think they were not consulted? Um, Should should the Trudeau government have made sort of a a more of a good faith effort to include them, um, you know, even before going to COP26 or, you know, sort of in in the run-up to COP26?
6: Well, there's no question. Look, under Canada's constitution is the provinces who have the constitutional responsibility for the development of natural resources. To go to a global conference about the future of energy and the future of the climate uh, without consulting provinces and without consulting those premiers tells me that, frankly, Prime Minister Trudeau didn't want to share the spotlight, didn't want to share any of the credit of what might have possibly come out of COP26 that would have been positive in nature for Canada, uh, and it shows a level of arrogance. But he only, not only did not consult Jason K. Kenny and, and Scott Moe, he also didn't consult his own caucus because they hadn't met since the campaign. He also didn't presumably consult his own cabinet because they have just been named and haven't received their mandates letter letters yet. So this is Justin Trudeau going internationally and, um, you know, Uh, vamping for the global audience.
0: And now we have Scott uh, Tonda saying, you know, a nation within a nation about Saskatchewan. You know, this is not a new struggle. We've seen this battle over natural resources for years. Some of us remember the national energy program that fueled Western alienation in the 90s, in the 80s rather. So do you expect the current tensions to build?
7: Look, I think that a lot of uh, what's going on is political posturing, to be frank. Um, to James's point that you know Trudeau just freelanced this whole thing uh, over on the international stage is not quite accurate. It was a promise. Uh, th- all the things that he outlined at the inter- International Summit on Climate Change were things that he had outlined to Canadians in the election campaign and were there on the platform. The detail he's right is lacking, and in that regard, Justin Trudeau could have politically made a better move, a smarter move to talk to Jason Kenney and Scott Moe in advance, but I don't know that that ever would have landed on a consensus about how to do it. The fact is there are a lot of oil and gas companies who believe that um, having basically what are going to be carbon emissions budgets going out on five year intervals will give not just them uh, uh, some certainty, but investors some certainty. And so I, I think that, you know, for Scott Mo now to sort of ride this uh, on the way to claiming nationhood is, is is a bit of political posturing.
0: The premiers haven't heard any details, but we haven't heard details. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of Canadians want to hear, uh, when it comes to the energy transition, what does that mean? We're talking here, there's between, depending who you talk to, 500 to 700,000 jobs at stake. Um, Why aren't we hearing any of this?
8: Well, and that's it, and that's, I think, a question that a lot of Canadians, not just Western Canadians, are asking. So, for example, the Trudeau government has pledged to end fossil fuel subsidies. Well, what do they consider a fossil fuel subsidy? What is a subsidy? Where's the definition for that? How are you going to figure out which one counts and which ones doesn't? That's something that Canadians want. I think when it comes to Western Canadians, it really seems like they want to be part of the conversation. They want to be consulted. They want to have a say, given that they believe they know their resources best and what they can do. And business leaders have come out... uh, industry leaders in the oil and gas sector fearing that, you know, the Trudeau government is, quote, being reckless, I heard one person say, and being dangerous. The industry, a lot of leaders fear that the government is overestimating the pace at which the sector can change, and that that will have a major impact on jobs and on the
0: economy. Yep, that will be a debate that we will follow for sure. But James, you know, I want to go from that, you know, issue to the debate within the Conservative Party here Leader Aaron O'Toole has unveiled his shadow cabinet and, and excludes vaccine mandate critics within his caucus. Is he sending a message or is he you know, creating possible, possibly, and, and you'll answer that question, a deeper fracture within his party?
6: We're now approaching two months since the election campaign. The caucus has empowered itself with the Reform Act to decide whether or not to have a leadership review. They've decided not to do that. So Aaron is the leader and he has the right to have a front bench that can actually physically show up and be on the front bench in Parliament. And if members of the caucus are not prepared to get vaccinated and demonstrate that and they can't actually be there, then they're not going to be part of the front bench team, number one, uh, but number two, I think certainly it is an important signal to send to all Canadians where you have approaching 90% of all Canadians who have received at least one uh, one vaccination, that of course the Conservative Party, we believe in vaccinations, we believe in the medical science and the medical community's consensus that the best way to beat COVID is to have vaccinations across the country and, and to do so. So um, I think it's an important thing.
0: And Tonda, we you know, we also saw Aaron O'Toole publicly criticize MP Marilyn Gladue for you know, sharing vaccine misinformation she made last week on this show. Is this as firm a stance that we've seen from him so far on the issue, you know, was it enough? And, you know, do you feel that his position on the issue is any clearer?
7: Well, it was as firm as we've ever heard Aaron O'Toole speak about the need to be very clear and not spread misinformation on vaccinations when he smacked down Marilyn Gladue this week. Absolutely. However, it's not gonna go away. And it's not just us, the media. I don't know about you, but everybody I run into in my neighborhood and wherever, when people ask me about Aaron O'Toole, they ask me what is going on with the conservatives? How does, what is that about? What is, how many are unvaccinated? And it's not gonna go away as long as you have conservative MPs who are openly musing to reporters on the record that they expect that some conservative MPs are going to test the um, house of Commons security uh, and arrive whether or not they're vaccinated those that are unvaccinated there's musings out there that they're going to somehow come in and either sneak or storm the way in uh when parliament resumes this is more than
0: a distraction it's a policy contradiction a leadership challenge you know annie you know is this division within the co- you know conservative parliament so solely about vaccines or is it about the leader.
8: I think those two issues go hand in hand. You know, yes, there are some members of his caucus who don't like vaccines or who don't want to get vaccinated or who don't want to share their vaccination status. There are also members of his caucus who have openly said that they believe this entire discussion has become a disruption. It's taking away from their ability to get work done. And they feel that Mr. O'Toole should have taken a position on this earlier. This is not something that crept up on Mr. O'Toole. The very first day of the campaign, reporters were asked him are your candidates vaccinated and he wouldn't say he was asked whether he would appoint a health minister who was vaccinated he dodged that question and then came back to it so you know he has been facing this question about vaccination status and vaccines since the very beginning and sort of dodged it and walked very carefully around the issue so this isn't something that should have surprised
0: him James Moore uh, thanks for joining us here on question period Annie and Tonda will be back for the scrum It's been five years, and now the band is getting back together. Canada, the U.S., and Mexico are slated to meet in Washington this week for the first North American summit since 2016. The annual tradition began in 2005, but had been put on hold during the Trump years. While there is some optimism this is a sign of improvement for the strained relationship, there are also big issues Canada will be looking to address. That includes buy American provisions in President Biden's Build Back Better plan. How critical will this summit be to reaffirming relations between the two countries? And what's on the line for Canada? To break it all down, the Scrum is here. Joining us today is CTV News Parliamentary Reporter Annie Bergeron Oliver, Tonda McCharles from the Toronto Star, and our special guest is former U.S. Ambassador to Canada Bruce Heyman. Uh, good morning to the three of you. Happy Sunday, um, Bruce Heyman. You know, you know, we haven't had this summit uh, in five years um, since President Biden came into office. There haven't had many opportunities of meeting. He hasn't come uh, to Canada yet. Um, how critical are these trilateral meetings and, you know, has the relationship between Canada and the U.S. suffered in the last few years, you know, after Donald Trump? Is this really a full reset?
2: So I think so. I think you point this out. I was very much involved in the early stage negotiations of the NALS meeting that took place in Ottawa while I was the ambassador. Everybody remembers President Obama came for that, and then had a bilateral meeting with the Canadians, and then spoke before Parliament. This was a critical and amazing day, but nobody would have ever thought that it would be five years till we got what was then called the three amigos together. But I think during the Trump administration, using the term three amigos was challenging since he treated our neighbors and allies with such disrespect that I think this is a reset moment. This is really important. I'm glad to see it's scheduled.
0: Important, Tonda, it's true that they meet face-to-face. We know uh, that that's always better than Zooms and, you know, telephone calls. But there are provisions in the Americans' uh, buyback, uh, better, uh, the infrastructure bill um, that are raising alarm bells for Canadian officials. They're downplaying it here. You know, Canada isn't coming at this in a very strong position or am i wrong
7: well i think that canada and mexico actually do have some concerns to bring to this table it might be a reset as uh, ambassador heyman said but look i mean if they can get past you know an awkward three-way handshake at the beginning maybe we'll all be declaring it a success unlike the last uh, very awkward three-way handshake um but there there is you're right a very uh critical debate going on right now between the three countries as a result of Joe Biden's um, desire to give preference to Americans America's auto sector and in the selling building and selling of electrical vehicles. He wants to onshore that there. He wants to give preference to his industry. And Canada and Mexico feel very threatened by that. It is an integrated North American auto industry. And I think they go both of them to that table trying to make that argument to Biden. But Biden's got a very protectionist Democratic caucus and constituency.
0: Annie, you know to 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 Tonda's point, you know, what's at stake uh, for Canada at this week's summit. We know, for instance, there's been a lot of lobbying. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ambassador has been lobbying Congress, trying to find out how these provisions, can they be changed, can they be amended. We know uh, the uh, devil is in the details in, it, in how it's, it's going to be written ultimately, but what is at, really at stake for Canada at this week's summit?
8: Well, Joyce, you know, anytime that world leaders meet in person, there's obviously high stakes involved. One wrong word, and that can impact a relationship and can even become newsworthy. And I think Tonda is right. This summit is very well-timed, given the fact that this bill is um, impacting Canada and Mexico. This tax rebate for Buy America, Made in America electric vehicles could have a big impact on Canada's auto industry. So, you know, you're right. Canadian officials have been talking to the White House. They've also been talking to others outside of the White House. Republican senators, for example, who are against this specific portion of that bill. So, this is an opportunity for Canada and Mexico to come together to bring something to the table um, that their officials have already been talking about, which is. Perhaps perhaps, to bring a North American provision instead of a made in America. But we also have to remember that Joe Biden is not as popular as he once was. He does have the midterm elections coming up in 2022. And so this type of buy America will play well for some of the states that he needs to win in that 2022 uh, midterm. So he's not just going to drop this provision easily.
0: Well, Bruce Heyman, there's a lot there. But, you know, uh, Annie makes a very good point that you know, Joe Biden's popularity isn't what it was a few months ago already. How much room is there here for Biden to compromise?
2: I don't know how much leeway there is. I'm I'm, I'm a big personal proponent for North American collaboration and cooperation and working together. We make things together. We build things together. The automobile industry is a critical component of our two and three shared economies in North America. And so i I'd like to see a pathway to, you know, bringing electric vehicles to all three countries. But these incentives in using U.S. taxpayer dollars is something that is very difficult to, you know, allow to be used with other countries making and building things.
0: Well, and and there's also, Tonda, there's also the new NAFTA that, you know, has to be uh, taken into account here. But what leverage do you think Justin Trudeau has going into this meeting.
7: Well, I think there's one thing in this whole electrical vehicle trying to boost that domestic industry, not just on the manufacturing, but on the purchase side. One lever uh, Canada has is that, you know, Canada's rich in the, the critical min- minerals that are crucial to building uh, lithium batteries and electrical batteries. So you know, Canada's trying to build that industry, we've still got a long way to go, but that's um, a carrot, shall we say, to bring to the table. Uh, with Joe Biden and in the bid to build, make it a more broader North American industry and also onshoring and making the supply chains more secure within the North American context. But beyond that, let's face it, I mean, Canada's a really small country. We're a very small player. Um, and vis-a-vis the Americans, the Americans have already had much more dealings, it seems to me, with the Mexican administration than they have with Canada. Their problems are bigger. That shared border and the migration issues on the
0: southern border for the U.S. are a huge political headache. And Annie, you know, when when Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden had that first virtual meeting in February, you know, Trudeau admitted there's a lot to rebuild. So his newest foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, uh, is also in Washington. She will attend those meetings, we are told. Um, How critical will her role be?
8: Well, you know, to a lot of Americans, Marie Jolie is a relative unknown. She has been a cabinet minister in Canada. She's been an MP for a number of years, but she hasn't had a role that's really enabled her or put her in a position to be talking to White House high-level officials on a daily basis. So she's sort of an unknown entity, which means that, you know, I think her responsibility and her goal will be to try to figure out where the common ground is for the U.S. and Canada. Um, you know, I think when Biden was elected, the Canadians thought that our relationship would a lot be more challenging. Chum- it would be smoothed over after the Trump administration. I think there is some disappointment that Canada really hasn't gotten
0: perhaps as many wins as we had wanted. Well, and we will be uh, following that summit this week, the first Three Amigos or so-called Three Amigos Summit uh, in, what, six years. Uh, Bruce Heyman, Annie Bergeron, Oliver, Donna McCharles, thanks for joining us today.
7: Thank you.
0: And that's your question period for this week. Evan Solomon will be back next week. And we'll see you here in seven short days.